my idea today, the idea I just want you to, to really kind of just put your mind around as we talk, is a wonderful idea. The wonderful idea is that we are wonderfully dependent on God for everything. We are wonderfully dependent on God for everything. You know, our culture tells us it's good to be independent. God tells us it's good to be dependent. It is a freeing and liberating idea to know and to confess that we are completely dependent on God. Isn't that a wonderful feeling? Isn't it great just to stop and go, wait a minute, I don't have to tight grip my life anymore. I don't have to make things happen anymore. I can just lay down my hands and confess regularly, God, I am dependent on you. I know yesterday I had a couple of moments where I had the opportunity, and God gives me opportunities to confess this all the time, but I don't always confess it. Can I? Well, don't say amen. <laughs> but yesterday I had a beautiful wedding. Uh, I don't know if you all know the Barnhill family, but uh, Mary James Barnhill yesterday, him and his new bride, Barbara, it was an outdoor wedding, and it was beautiful. It was this great occasion. There was a couple moments in this wedding when I realized how dependent I was on God. The first one, it was starting to run a little late, and nobody was where they were supposed to be. And when things start running late, I start getting jittery. You know, I'm not like one of those guys that just flows. I'm like, what's going on? And then a, a groomsman came to our group and said, the bride has changed all of the plans. And I went, what? You know, like... It's go time. We can't change the plans. And I realized there, okay, God, I am dependent on you. Of course, it worked out. It wasn't as dramatic as it sounded, but you know what I'm saying. The other moment when I realized I was dependent on God yesterday was when the mother of the groom started dancing with him to do the dance where she's dancing with James. James and Lena Barnhill were dancing. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. I started tearing up. I went, oh, my gosh. I mean, I started almost, I got welled up. That's why I wore this peach shirt. I, feel, I felt like a girl in that moment, you know? <laughs> and I said to Sherry, I was like, if I'm starting to get weepy for the mother of the groom dancing at the wedding, what's going to happen when I got my daughters getting married and I'm doing the vows, right? I mean... There's these moments when I go, I am really dependent on God, but it is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. When we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, what's happening and what we reviewed last week is David had come to the nation of Israel and he had said to Israel, God has called my son Solomon to build a temple. And I'm about to die and hand over the keys to the kingdom, as it were, to my son Solomon. And what I need you all to do as a nation is to give generously so that we can afford to build this temple for God. And the great moment in 1 Chronicles 29 is that the nation of Israel responded abundantly. They brought more than enough of an offering to build a great and glorious temple. And Solomon was well supplied by both his father who was about to die, King David, and the nation he was about to be the king of. And David, in response to this remarkable moment of generosity on the part of God's people, gives, all, gives this ultimate song of praise to God. And he, in this psalm of praise found in First Chronicles 
chapter 29, starting in verse 10, David begins to praise God for the reasons why the people of Israel were so willing and joyful and cheerful in their generosity. And what we talked about was the first reason that David outlines for their generosity is that they were wonderfully captivated by the greatness of God. Y'all remember that. In fact, the key verse last week was verse 11. Lay your eyes on it again. David says in this classic psalm, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now, some of y'all know the Lord's Prayer, right? And you say the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, you say what? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Y'all know that? Now, here's the thing. Here's the crazy, really wonderful. I'm going to give you just a little, little teaching here. The crazy thing is, is that the ending of the Lord's Prayer is not found in the original manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. It was added into the Gospel of Matthew by an editor of Scripture in a long, long time ago. A scribe inserted that. And so the big question is, where did that come from? Yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever. Why was that inserted into the manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew? And the reason why is because he took it from another part of Scripture. He inserted this Scripture, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, into the Lord's Prayer. And that's why we say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The reason why I bring that up is because it was the history of Israel and Jewish people to be captivated by the greatness of God. That was what defined them as a people. Yours is the victory. You are awesome. I want my heart to be gripped by the greatness of God, don't you? I want to ask God, Holy Spirit, grip us now. Even now, may God grip us with his greatness in our heart. May our life and our religion and our spirituality not be a disinterested outward Forms only kind of religion. May our spirituality be a relationship gripped by God's greatness. May we treasure and value God as uppermost, not only in our affections, but in reality, in the sovereignty and in the majesty and in the glory of God. Yes, they were captivated. So, of course, when David says, Hey, man, we're going to build a temple for God's glory. They were like, sign me up, baby. I'm captivated by the greatness of God. I want God to be glorified. I want the name of God to spread. That's what's happening. And that's why David is praising God. I mean, if you think about it, you know, think about this temple. Now think about it. They're going to build a big old temple. It's going to be one of the greatest monuments in all of human history. I mean, Solomon's temple is one of the great glories ever of human achievement. You can look that up. You can Google that. They'll pull up pictures, and people will talk about how great it was. But you know, when they were given their money for the building of that temple, it wasn't a country club. It wasn't like they were building a building that they were going to get to really enjoy. It's not like there was, you know, an open bar inside, and they were all going to get to sit around and smoke cigars and hang out in the men's club. You know what I mean? That's not what the temple was. 
The temple wasn't going to have a country club or a golf course around it. There was, there was no comforts or luxuries that would be added to their benefit by giving money to this temple. They literally gave their money to a temple that they would only experience, most people in Israel would only experience from time to time. And when they experienced it, it would only be a reminder of sacrifice and blood and being reconciled to God through what God has provided. Isn't that remarkable? So they literally don't get any cable TV from it. They don't get any retirement from it. They get no personal benefit. The only benefit they get in building that temple is we want to glorify God. Now that's radical generosity, not because of the amount of money they gave, but why they gave. We all want to be generous, but usually our human nature and what happens in society is we want to give the thing. I want to know what happens to this dollar, and I want, I want some kind of benefit from this. I want to give this money. I want to see the outcome, and I want to enjoy it at the end of the day. I want to enjoy what I'm giving my money to, and that radical generosity is completely different. I want to give for the glory of God. I want to be a generous person because God has been generous by providing sacrifice and blood for me and for his glory and for reconciliation. You see, they were willing to give because they were captivated by the greatness of God. So I just re-preached last week's sermon. I'm sorry about that. But here's the second point. The second reason why they were so generous is because they knew they were wonderfully dependent upon God. See, that's where we're going. They were wonderfully dependent upon God. And they were wonderfully dependent in all all of their life. David is expressing and confessing and singing about how dependent they are. And not only are they wonderfully dependent on God for life, but all of life. Every category of life they are dependent on God for. And we pick this up in verse 14. What areas of life are we wonderfully dependent upon God The first area where we are wonderfully dependent upon God is our financial life. That's what David says here. Look at it in verse 14. He says this, But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you, For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. And you know what David is saying. David is saying, we're giving back to you what was already yours in the first place. This money (laughs) that we have given for the building of your temple, for the glory of your name, it comes from you and it belongs to you. Last week, we kind of used this for a moment of conviction in our life, didn't we? Last week, what we said is, you can't give anything to God that wasn't his in the first place. Can I get an amen? And that's convicting. That's a convicting reality that... If I have a talent, if I have a job, if I'm able and willing to go to work and work hard, if I'm able to breathe and wake up every day, 
And I'm able to do a good enough job to provide for my family, to put food on the plate, to provide a house and a roof over my head, and to come to church, and to give to the church, and to give to St. Jude's, and to, and to give to all of these charities that I love to give to, and to be a generous person. At the end of the day, everything I have is because God has empowered me to be there to do that thing. There is never a moment where we can say, hey, God, are you impressed with me now? Because I did that. Like, our confession is, God, thank you for giving me the ability. Thank you, God. Even for those things that I had that maybe other people didn't have. I had a family, man. I had a dad that provided for me. I had a dad that built into me a value of educating myself, gave me books. I'm in a country, by the grace of God, where I'm free to pursue my dream. Everything you and I have comes from God. And there's never a moment where God's like, you know, I really need money. You know what God is saying? God is like, I'm going to test you to see if you can confess through your generosity that I'm the one. That gave you those abilities. I'm the one that gave you those talents. I gave you that family, that country, that place, that time. Aren't you glad you didn't live in the dark ages? I read about the dark ages. That plague thing that happened in Europe? Uh Uh-uh, I'm out. I would have wimped out of that deal early. You know what I'm saying? I need AC. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And I have AC because of God. My riches, my wealth, and it is amazing how wealthy I am. I'm a rich man. If if we're talking about monetary terms, it comes from God, and it's for his purposes. So I need to give that back to him. I need to say, oh, whoa, 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 that's yours. That's for your glory. My life is for your name. My life is for your glory. Nope, that's your stuff. That's, my life is yours. But you know what? Let me tell you. We did the conviction part last week. Let me do a comfort part this week. Because not only should that convict, it should comfort. Listen to me. Your poverty belongs to God too. You can give that back to him as well. When you're wondering how you're going to make the next payment. When you're wondering if you're going to have enough to make it through the month. When you're going from paycheck to paycheck, barely. Maybe you're not even making it there. Or when you need a job or you need new employment. You know what this passage tells us and what the Bible tells us? We can give him our poverty too. That belongs to him as well. You can put that anxiety and that worry and all of those things that happen to us when we're going, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how I'm going to make it through the month. We can, we can take that anxiety and say, God, you're my provider. You're the one that provides for me. And I know that you're going to come through in time for me. Let me show you something along those lines, by the way. We are wonderfully dependent on God, certainly in our financial life, whether we're rich or whether we are poor. Um, David says early at the end of uh, 1 Chronicles 28, turn there with me real quick, just one chapter ahead of where we're at. David is having a great dad moment with Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.20. This is kind of the passing of the baton or passing of the key speech to his son Solomon. He knows he's about to die. And it's a, it's a great moment that David has with Solomon. But But David says to him in verse 20, Then David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. 
For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all of the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. He's telling Solomon, listen, I know that what God has you to do is a big deal. I know it's overwhelming. I know that you got big responsibilities. Heavy lies the crown on the head. Amen. You know what I'm saying? And, and David's saying, listen, be strong and courageous. Remember what Joshua said. We love Joshua, don't we? Yeah. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. God will provide for his work in your life. God will provide for his purpose in your life. And so what's interesting about don't be afraid. You, God will not forsake you or leave you. What's interesting about that is that, and you don't have to turn there because I want to do this really quick. But Hebrews chapter 13 quotes that verse. And, and Hebrews 13 in the New Testament quotes that verse in the context of money. It says here in ver- Hebrews 13 verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us that we can't have money. It's just talking about idolizing or loving money, making money our God. Money makes a horrible God, but a good servant. That's what we preach here at Crosspoint. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, listen, you don't have to be afraid ever. Even when you're poor. Let us say we weren't born in a great country. Let us say we weren't born with central AC, which I know for me is an impossibility. But let's say that I had to live in a a small hut with no air. Maybe one meal a day, barely. Yet even then, I could look to God and say, I will not be left or forsaken. God will give me for his purposes for my life today. I've got something to do in this village or this town or this city. God will provide for what he wants me to do for his glory. Amen? That's why Jesus said, you know what, Jesus, I don't have time to go there. Matthew, see, I'm already behind again. I'm repeating the sermon and I'm behind. But Jesus said in Matthew chapters, remember Jesus said, hey, don't be anxious about what you're going to wear and what you're going to live in and what you don't. Look at the birds. Remember, he says, look at the birds. And what did he say about the birds? He said, the birds had greater glory than what? The temple of Solomon. He said, the birds are array in a greater splendor than the temple of Solomon. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself. Give your anxiety to God. Your Father in heaven will provide for you. So listen to me. We are wonderfully dependent on God, aren't we? And we're wonderfully dependent on God in our financial life. Our financial life. Secondly, we are wonderfully dependent on God for our temporary life. I like... How David says in verse 15, we are strangers before you and sojourners. I explained that to you last week. Um, As all of our fathers were, I'll have to remember to talk about that in second service because they didn't get that information, so i got to get that. But he says, our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. David is confessing the solemn truth that life on earth is a temporary gig. This is not a permanent residence. We are pilgrims. 
We are spiritual pilgrims. We are aliens to planet earth. This is not our home. You cannot, I don't care how much culture gets in you, it's a lie when we are told that we're going to have this for the rest of our life. You're not going to. Your life is being squeezed by time and decay. Your life is being squeezed by by the ongoing consequences of original sin. The mortality rate is still 100%. We are but a shadow. There is no abiding. When we remember that, it focuses our life, doesn't it? When we walk in the temporariness of our life, when we walk in the shadow of life and the sense of no abiding, it gives us a heart of wisdom. In fact, Psalm chapter 90 and uh, and verse 12, one of my favorite verses on this very point, the psalmist says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Or you, could, or you could read Psalm 39, which indicates that our days are determined by God. And there is a beginning and there is an end to our life. Psalm 39, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. This is all over the place in the Bible. You're like, well, that's not very encouraging. Bible telling me I'm going to die all the time. Ecclesiastes says, you know what? It's good to go to a house of mourning. It's good to go to a funeral as opposed to a house of joy and happiness and partying because the living will take it to heart. They see their end. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. They see their end and they go, oh my gosh, that is real. That coffin is real. That dead body is real. And that is my end. And we take it to heart, don't we? We take it to heart. Nobody takes that kind of stuff to heart at a wedding. I can tell you, I did a wedding yesterday. You know, the last thing that's on everybody's mind at a wedding? Death. Nobody's like, hey, we're at a wedding. Let's talk about dying today. But when you're, when you're at a funeral, God says it's good. You're like, how can that be good? I'll tell you how it's good. It's empowering. Because when you realize that life is temporary, that it's a shadow, that it's a mere breath, that it's, in another passage, it says that life is like a vapor. When you're in the kitchen and you're cooking and, you know, I'm this great cook. Sherry will tell you, I'm stirring and I'm not a great cook. I can do mac and cheese a little bit. But anyways, but you're stirring and you see that vapor coming off the, off the, off the, you know, the, the pan thing. You're like, well, you're a great communicator today. Anyways, and, and you see that steam and it just disappears. The Bible says life is like that, and it's gone. And that gives your life a really focused perspective, doesn't it? Because then you got to go, why am I here? I don't want to waste this vapor. If I am but a breath, if if my life is temporary, God, I don't want to waste this breath. I don't want to waste this steam. I want it to matter. 
I want the mist of my temporary life to go out into this world and glorify you. So what is my purpose? And when you begin to ask yourself, what is your purpose? Because you're so temporary, guess what begins to happen with your generosity? You begin to flow your money towards your purpose. You begin to guide your resources to what God's called you to do. You begin to direct the the life and the resources that God has given to you for your life. Why did they give, beloved? Why did they give to the temple? Because they said, we ain't going to be here very long. We might as well glorify God with our time. We're all going to die. And we're going to go face God. So I'm going to live on earth for divine purposes because this gig ain't about me. This gig ain't permanent. It's temporary. It's about God. So I'm going to live the rest of my life for the glory of God. Hmm. That is a financial peace liberating principle, beloved, I promise you. Because if you're like me, here's what happens to me. Confessions of a pastor. You're like, great. This is going to be good. When I forget that I'm a follower of Jesus, I get easily distracted by things and stuff, and I begin to live randomly. And you know what happens when I live random? I'm kind of going along, and I'm like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I live. And I'm like, ooh, pretty thing. And I go over to the pretty thing, and I go buy it. And I bring the pretty thing home, and I go, I don't like the pretty thing anymore because I just bought it. It was really fun buying it, but now I don't need the pretty thing. And then you're locking her along, and you ooh, another pretty thing. Ooh, I think I'll go buy that too. And then you take that home, and you, and you just start living randomly. And you want to know why everybody's in debt? Because everybody's living randomly. We can't help it. We have no purpose, we have no direction, we have no aim, we think it's all forever, we're told it's all forever. We're told even the pretty thing's going to last forever, when in fact it's going to rust, or it's going to be stolen, or it's going to break, it's going to break down, it's going to break down. That minivan that I didn't even like in the first place, (laughs) it's going to break down. I love the story, one of my favorite presidential biographies is on Harry Truman. Great biography on Harry Truman. That I read, and, 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 it, and it took me like five years to read it because the book was this thick. So I started with page one when I was 15, and I ended at 25. Anyways, uh, but I'm reading this book about Harry Truman, and Harry Truman as a kid was blinder than a bat. He couldn't see a thing. He just could So here's this little boy who had all this energy, and he was running into trees, and he was running over stuff. And he just, you know, and there's a little, little Harry trapped again. You know, I mean, he, just, he was running it. But he didn't know. He had no idea that he couldn't see. Why? Because he had never seen. And if you've never seen, then you don't know you can't see. So he's just happy Harry running into trees. And one day in high school, he wants to go out for the baseball team because he loves baseball. He listens to baseball. He talks about baseball with his family. So he listens to ba- And so he goes out for the baseball team. And Harry can't play baseball because he can't catch a ball. His face catches the ball because he's like this, and the ball hits him in the face. And the high school coach goes, you know, I think Harry's pretty coordinated. I don't think it's a coordination issue. And he, Harry, come over here. You know how coaches are, especially back then. They're like you know, paddle you or something, give you swats. But, Harry, come over here. I'm paraphrasing the biography, by the way. Come over here. Can you see? And Harry said, what? How many fingers am I holding up? And he's like, ten. And he goes, Harry, I want you to go to an eye doctor as soon as practice is done and have your eyes checked out. And he goes to the eye doctor And the eye doctor gave him glasses. And Harry, for the first time in his life, could see the world. He could see trees. 
He could see the ball coming into his glove. He could could see life. He would later on say as the president of the United States, he would say, those who can't see ordinary things are not living. And what the Bible tells us is that before we have that sense of I'm here for divine purposes, we're running into stuff randomly. We're just running all over life and it's just hitting us in the face and we're buying this and we're buying that and we're wondering why we're tripling all over the place. And God says, listen, put on these divine glasses of purpose. Put on these divine glasses of temporariness. Put on this divine uh, uh, glasses of I've got a purpose for you. And what that means, beloved, for you and I is we got to do the hard work of surrender to God, praying to God, asking God, having conversations with God, reading scripture in the presence of God, seeking filling of the Holy Spirit from God so we can say, God, what's my purpose? I can't give you that. I can't outline the 10 principles of your purpose in life. You got to go get that from God. God, I'm blind. Running into trees, and I need some glasses. You're the eye doctor. You're going to have to have those conversations. That's, you know, one of the reasons we talked about uh, earlier, Cameron brought up, we're changing our services from 9 to 11. The main thing is, is because, frankly, I preach too long, we don't have enough time in between services. Let's just call it what it is, all right? We're not going to spin this gig. It is what it is. I've been here for five years. I'm trying to change. Keep praying for me, but it is what it is. And we need more time in between services to eat donuts. I want to go down there and talk to people, and I don't have time to do it. And there, there is the parking issue. But can I just be honest with you? The other thing is, is that I want to have more time at the end of our services to pray. we got to become a house of prayer. Now, Crosspoint, you're good at some great stuff. You're good at loving. You're warm. You're... You're great people. We're talented. We got talent all over the place in this little church, and and you got this great heart. But you know what? We've not been good at. We have not been good at praying. And I'm sorry. I love the prayer requests on the city. Keep doing it. Thumbs up. Whatever. But you know what? We need to do far more than that, don't you think? And some of you, you got you got to humble yourself before God. You got to pray. You got to ask God. God, help me to know what I'm supposed to do. That is a financial purpose. I mean, that is a financial principle for life. Our temporary life is dependent on God. It is temporary. And we need to give him our life. We are wonderfully dependent on God in our financial life, our temporary life. Here's the other thing. We're wonderfully dependent on God in our inner life. He says here, uh, switching gears a little bit in verse 17. He says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people And direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, performing all, that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. 
The thing you see there in verses 17 and following that we just read is that David keeps bringing up the heart. In fact, he uses that word heart five times, indicating that God is looking at the heart. In fact, it says, God, you test the heart. You test the heart. You're looking inside. You're looking at my inner life, my inner life, the integrity of my motives, the integrity of my intentions, the integrity of who I really am. That's what you're looking at. By the way, you know, God is not primarily concerned first. He is concerned about what we do, but not primarily. You know, he's far more concerned about who we are in our heart. Who we really are. I mean, I could give a million dollars to the church and God's like, I'm not impressed until it comes from the heart. I could be a generous person. Everybody could look at me and say, Joshua is the most generous person, but that's not radical generosity. Radical generosity is whether I give one dollar or one million dollar, it's flowing from an integrity that's deeply united and connected to God. Radical generosity has nothing to do about the amount and everything to do about the intention of what we're doing. And David is saying, these people you see, you've tested, you can see that they've given willingly and cheerfully and joyously. Nobody's shown up here, God, today. You can test that no one has come here today and just been like, okay, I'll give them the temple. You know, David's asking for money again. He's saying, God, you can test the heart. You can see that our giving is flowing from this willingness. Why and what is that saying? It's saying that our inner life is dependent on God. David himself was chosen, not because of his outward stature. In fact, I read this verse any chance I can get. So this is my, another chance to once again read this verse. It's my favorite. It's like a life verse. I put it on the fridge. I've, I just love this verse. But you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 7, Samuel's looking for the king who will follow King Saul. Samuel looks at every one of David's big brothers, and he looks to David last. Why? Because David was small, seemingly insignificant compared to his big brothers. I hope my big brothers are listening right now. I've got two big brothers. Let us just enjoy this moment together, shall we? Lance, Sean, I hope you're podcasting if you're not. How dare you? Okay. God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have, re- I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's not about height. Can I get an amen? Not about strength. It's not about how impressive we are to other people. It's not about our appearances or our outward forms of religion or our our disinterested kind of rituals that we do. It's not about that. It's about the heart. God's looking at the heart. God sees in the heart, and that's what he's doing. 
Again, that's convicting because God's calling us to give him who we are, to really get before him, to say, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. I don't want you, God, just to be a mere concept. I want you to be a heavyweight reality in my heart. Holy Spirit, shape my heart to love Jesus, to love Scripture genuinely with affection. And we'll never perfect that, but that's what we keep pressing into. Isn't that right? It's not about perfection, but direction towards that perfection of a heart that loves God. Our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, we want to love God. But can I say to you as well the comforting truth that God wants to work in you where you really need the work. You and I, we got needs. We're just broken people. A little insecure at times. We're shaky, decayed. And we're told that you know what you need. You know what you need to feel better. You need more stuff. I'm, I, and I find myself convinced of that sometimes. I'm like, you know, I really do believe if I had a Porsche, I'd be happier. <laughs> well, I really do believe, you know, that it, I, have, I have children. So sometimes I believe, you know, I'd be happier if I could give them all this great stuff. Don't get any ideas, girls. I'm told that that's what's going to make me, but you know what? That's not really the secret to happiness. You know what the secret to happiness is? A heart that is changed and loved by God. Identity that's secure in his love. You know, Paul says we're justified by faith in Jesus. And therefore, Romans chapter 5 verse 5, he pours out his love into our heart by the Holy Spirit. What is the kingdom of God? It's not eating and drinking. It's peace and righteousness with God. That's Romans chapter 15. God is working in our heart. And you know, the the more that we give him our identity, the more we say, God, I want you to define who I am and what I'm supposed to do, like coming back to that temporary idea of purpose and heart. The The more we give our hearts to him, the more we just joyously, gladly begin to flow in generosity. Blessings begin to not stop with us. They flow through us. Blessings don't stop. And I hold on to it. I just let it go because God is working in my heart. He's working in my life. He's motivating. And that's why the people aren't just giving. Willingly giving, cheerfully giving, flowing with gladness and joy. David says, you see that, God. And that's what, God, you want to see. That's what you want to see. Let me close this out. We are wonderfully dependent on God in our financial life, our temporary life, our inner life. But finally... We're wonderfully dependent on God in our joyful life. Kind of connected to the heart there, but our joyful life. Look at verse 20. Here's the, the psalm is done. David's done singing. Maybe his last psalm ever. It's powerful. That's poignant. And it says here in verse 20, Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day, they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. One thousand bulls, one thousand rams, one thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all of Israel. And they ate... And drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. 
Here they are filled with even more joy. So they bring more bulls and rams and lambs and they sacrifice them. And they have this practice and this idea of, of blood and, and, and sacrifice. And they sit before, this is it. This is, this is when you know that you're getting there. Is when you're able to sit down at the table of God and go, I'm, I'm good. I'm at your table, God, and I'm good. <laughs> and, and how could they know that? I mean, what, what was the real secret of their joyful contentment in the presence of God? What was the real secret? And the real secret of them realizing that they were at God's table and they were, they were truly good. They were, <laughs> they were truly right with God. There was no worries here within the God's presence. It was a sacrifice. They have been taught. They have been taught from Leviticus that God provides sacrifice so that his people who believe in the promise of sacrifice can sit in his presence and be shaped by security and assurance. There is no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that right? And when that begins to shape our psyche, it begins to shape our emotions. It begins to give us that joyful, peaceful contentment. I'm right with God. I'm right with God. And we're Christians, aren't we, man? That's, we are Christians. And we know what's happening here. When they're sitting at that table and they're eating and drinking, we know exactly what that's about before it even happened. We know that's a picture of Jesus. That Jesus would come. And he would say in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus said, I am the temple. I am the priest. Can I get an amen? I am the king. And I've come and I've given my life so that you can sit at the table of God and know that by me and through me, you are right with God. You can sit in God's presence and know. I have God in my life. And knowing that he's glorious and victorious and majestic and sovereign... I know. And that's why, beloved, listen to me. When the Bible begins to tell us about our salvation and our testimony, if you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, this is what you get to, you're invited to embrace. But listen, if you're a Christian, God describes your testimony in economic terms. God describes your testimony of salvation in economic terms. And what, do, wow, I almost tripped there. Do you see that? Thank you, Lord, you caught me. And what does that mean? God says, I have purchased you. I have bought you. With the blood of Jesus, you are purchased. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and following says this, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, is that saying that Jesus died on a cross so we could get a bunch of money? Is that telling us that Jesus died so we could have a new Cadillac? Is that Jesus dying so we can wear the Rolex or the fancy preacher suit? 
I think Sherry sometimes wishes I could wear a fancy preacher suit, but when it says that Jesus became poor to make us rich, does that have anything to do with money? No, of course not. We become rich in the inheritance and the promises and the salvation and the forgiveness and the freedom with God and the person that begins to be shaped and their identity and their sense of meaning and purpose is shaped by that and their relationship with God, that is a person that becomes a joyful, contented person in the presence of God. We are wonderfully dependent on God for our salvation, joyful life. Isn't that true? David's saying, our people, they give. Because they know they've been given to the sacrifice. And we as Christians know that Jesus purchased us with a price. Ephesians 1 7 says, We have been redeemed, another word that's an economic term, with the blood of Jesus Christ. Later on in Ephesians 1, it says, We have an inheritance and a deposit by the Holy Spirit. That deposit of salvation is the rich blessings of salvation in Christ. And you're called to believe in that and to persevere in that message and to tuck that into your heart and say, that's what defines my life. That's what's going to guide my purpose. That's what's going to give my temporary life meaning. That's what's going to guide my financial life. Every part of my life is going to be guided ultimately by the joy of salvation. And you know what? I get, now I don't know about you. Okay, I'm just going to put myself on the spot here. But I get in trouble financially when I forget to be shaped by that identity that God has given to me in Jesus Christ. That's that's the truth. But man, when I've been shaped by that identity, man, man, the resources flow in the right direction. Life flows in the right direction. My heart is content. You see, the people of Israel were motivated to give for two reasons. They were captivated by the greatness of God, and they were wonderfully dependent on God for all of their life. Now, what that's going to do, this is going to set us up. This is a setup. Everybody say, it's a setup. Next week, having talked about the motives of radical generosity, we're going to talk about the measures, because we need practical help. We get fired up, but then we're like, you don't know, my, I'm in trouble. I need some biblical like wisdom on how to begin to do this rightly. And the Bible is not silent on that. God is not silent. We're going to talk about that next week. Can I, I'm telling next week could be life-changing for some of you, I promise you. So let us pray. Let us give our life to him now.